Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last month, the multi-Grammy award-winning guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper released his highly anticipated album, Bloodline Maintenance. He'll tell us about growing up surrounded by instruments and music that have influenced his rich, eclectic blend of folk traditions. Plus, we'll celebrate Louis Black's 74th birthday by listening back to our conversation with the King of Rant recorded earlier this year ahead of his tour stop in Atlanta. First... After two and a half years of the pandemic and our reckoning with racial injustice, a new art campaign explores the question, where do we go next? Next Atlanta and Marta have partnered to launch the Next Movement, the multi-platform arts and social action campaign highlights five Atlanta artists and their works, which speak directly to this moment in time. Joining me now via Zoom are Faith Carmichael, co-founder and director of Next Atlanta, Catherine Durga, director of Art in Transit at MARTA, and the poet and author John Good. Welcome to City Lights. Yes, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Faith, before we talk about the campaign, would you please tell us what inspired you to create Next in 2008? Absolutely, Lois, would love to. So Next is really the brainchild of several Atlanta artists who had been going out into the community and just happening to engage with amazing, talented artists across genres, musicians, literary artists, visual artists who were doing incredible work. They were from our own community, so black and brown artists, artists of color. And what we noticed is that though they were doing really incredible work, their reach was limited. We realized that we don't always have the same level of access to venues and exposure and arts journalism as maybe 
our other counterparts and we complained about it as artists are wont to do. And then at a certain point, we just thought, well, what can we do about it? So we started just creating spaces for these amazing artists to come together and share their work and give voice to the amazing talents that they had. And then filling that room with other individuals who were similarly talented or had the ability to help them get to their next level. And these were all powerful artists who were sort of at the cusp of getting to that next place. And what we saw was ourselves as a space and a vehicle to help them get there. And so we started calling it next, meaning they were really the next big thing. You had the opportunity to sit in living rooms or in small gallery spaces and see these incredible artists up close before they became stratospheric. And that's how we started. Would it be correct to say that you had the Harlem Renaissance as a role model? Yeah, we were sort of bold and ambitious enough to think of ourselves as living in the tradition of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, a time of great unrest and great challenges for communities of color in the New York area, but that also gave rise to just a beautiful cultural awakening led by and inspired by artists. And we see ourselves as sort of continuing in that tradition right here in Atlanta with these incredible artists who are not just artists, but are socially conscious and active and using their art to bring about change in their communities. And whatever we can do at Next to create sort of a space for that to occur is what we are committed to. How did the partnership between Next and MARTA come about, Catherine? Well, Faith introduced me to Next and I was really interested in ways that MARTA might be able to partner with Next. We look for community partners. Artbound really positions itself as a connector in the community, a way for MARTA to connect with its patrons and with the communities that we serve. And so this seemed like an ideal partnership to me. Although um, at that time, really Next was kind of situating itself in, you know, more of a salon kind of um, environment. And so I wasn't sure how our noisy <laughs> train stations could be a salon. And so we, we talked in, in some ways, the pandemic shut down, the lockdown worked in our favor a bit because then we could kind of vision this as a virtual experience. Ah, in New York City, it's not unusual. In fact, it's common to see musical or dance performances, spoken word, while riding the subway. How does Marta's Artbound expand upon that artistic transit experience? Well, we have a roster of about 30 musicians, and they play in our stations along with the Marta Fresh Markets that are there one day a week in each of the different lines of Marta. And so we do have live musicians that play in tandem with the markets. I will say that prior to the shutdown, we had musicians playing in, you know, 16 stations a week. And so we have pulled that back, unfortunately, a bit um, just due to safety reasons, safety concerns, and, you know, to reflect that there is, you know, to be frank, a bit less ridership right now. Um, but we do still put on many performances in the stations besides the live music as well. We have a really nice partnership with Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater, and they've done some wonderful things over the year and will continue through the holidays. So 
we are a very vibrant program. It's called Artbound Live, and it encompasses typically around 160 performances a year. And so we are very active in the stations. This year we've added, we had dance theater, live music, and this year we've added opera and spoken word. So we're out there. <laughs> wow. Now, who are the five artists participating in this arts and social action campaign? We were able to partner with you know, sort of like a dream team of the artists that we've worked with in the past that we just thought were incredible and would really represent the sort of first effort with our first collaboration with MARTA around the next movement. So we're working with the incredible John Good, who you'll likely hear from later, who is an author and poet and host of the mock storytelling event. Okori Okechello Johnson, who is a, a longtime friend of this program. Cece Sunchild, who's an amazing vocalist and uh, pianist and songwriter. Carlos Andres Gomez, who is also a poet and an author, um, spoken word artist and an actor. And Melissa Mitchell, who is a visual artist that's worked closely with Marta in the past. And together, each one of these artists, thanks to Marta, will be commissioned to do a single piece within their genre that speaks to these issues of where we are right now and, and where we need to go next. John, please tell us the name of your poem and, if you can, what you will address within it. Yeah, so uh, the poem, when I initially wrote it, it was called These Days, and I, I don't know, that title might stick, but it's an ever-evolving poem. Actually, I, I was editing and rewriting it, uh, I think, two days before we did the performance on the train, because as the incredible um, Nina Simone said, she said, it is the duty of the artist to reflect the times, and the times just move so quickly, and it just seems like there are new, new issues to address almost every day. And so the piece, it, it was literally a, 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 a piece that was evolving as the project was evolving. So up until two days before the, the, the actual performance, I was editing and changing and writing that poem. And if I had to do it again today, it would be maybe even different today because so much has happened since. If you are just joining us... I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. My guests are Faith Carmichael, co-founder and director of Next Atlanta, Catherine Durga, the director of Art in Transit at MARTA, and the poet and author John Good. In July, each of the artists filmed their performances on Empty train cars. What inspired that idea? So a couple of things, Lois. I think one, we were inspired by an NPR product, actually, called the Tiny Desk Series, where incredible artists, as they were emerging before they become sort of, some of them before they become household names, some of them after they become household names, perform in a particular setting, that is sort of democratic and allows us to be able to just plug into their performances in a virtual way. And as Catherine mentioned, we were looking for ways to be able to pivot with the onset of the pandemic to be able to showcase these artists and their amazing talent in a virtual space. And so this virtual concert series sort of bubbled up, sort of built on this idea that we first saw on Tiny Desk. And then we just thought, what if our sound set was a train? What was it, what if it was just part of the exact 
space and, and energy of the transit system that we were hoping to showcase. And so we sort of merged those two concepts and this idea came up and it sounded a little insane to me, but I said it <laughs> to Catherine and she always willing for a great adventure said, yeah, let's do it. And it was really, it was, I think, even more beautiful and more compelling than I think even we thought it could be. Catherine, these are decommissioned martyr trains, correct? <laughs> no, actually, uh, you know, the train that was used is one that was in our yard. And so the trains go through a service period after they do their runs. And so this was a train that, you know, was able to be out of service for I think 36 hours or something like that. And so, yeah, they were able to do it on the real train. It will look just like a real train that you would ride. And I agree with Faith. I mean, it was just, it was almost mysterious, the, the magic of lighting and, um, you know, production. I won't tell all the secrets, but it was very compelling and very beautiful to see art being made in this, in this space. And so I thought it was a good idea, but I was really surprised, I think, by how how it turned out. It's really beautiful. Very cool. John, how did it feel to perform on an empty martyr train with no audience? Oh, it was it was a ball. The the cast and the crew, they actually served as an audience. So I was very fortunate that when I was done, they were nice enough to give me a, a standing ovation. So oh. it, it felt good. But it also felt good because I've, I've written the Marta forever. You know, I've probably written every line of, of the Marta. And I've written so many poems sitting there on the Marta. And I've sat there and kind of spoke, you know, mumbled them to myself where people are looking at me like, I don't think that young man is well. <laughs> and so it was good to, it was good to do the poem on the train and have it, you know, so well received when I'm like, wow, I've created so much art on these trains. It's good to to like kind of come full circle and be able to do this performance on the train as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Here, Marta has been inspiration or at least enabled you to have that creative space while you were riding it. And Yes, it, it was literally a vehicle to create my art. Ah, <laughs> Words well chosen <laughs> happens to be your area. Now, this project has several parts to it. Would you tell us about the photo exhibition and poster series, as well as the High Museum Salon event? Yeah, I would love to. So as you mentioned, Lois, there's sort of three key elements to the campaign that we are curating with Marta. One is sort of a poster series and photo exhibit that features each of our five artists. It also really excitingly features five incredible, what we call art champions in the community. Charlie Palmer, who I think everyone knows is an incredible internationally known artist. Tracy Morell, who is an artist and creator here in the city. Uh, Lauren Tate Baeza, who is um, head of African art curation at the High Museum, Stephanie Owens, who heads up the National Black Arts, um, and Egbert Perry, who's an art patron that is CEO of the Integral Group, and our five artists. And it just showcases each of these individuals with powerful commentary or quotes speaking to these issues that we've mentioned so far. Um, the second key element is the virtual concert series that you just mentioned, and we have already recorded those and filmed those. And we're packaging them and airing them and allowing them to be aired on all of our platforms and all of our partners' platforms in the run-up to the High Museum event. 
And then the last element, um, we're really excited to be working with the High Museum to host an event, as the young people say, IRL, <laughs> in real life, <laughs> physically at the High Museum. And each of these incredible artists, again, thanks to Marta, will be performing their commission piece live for everyone to be able to enjoy. Will the filmed pieces, the artists' videos that were filmed on the train, will those be featured in any of the Mars' stations? We plan to share the, the videos that were made on the train via our social media outlets. Ah, okay. Two and a half years after our country's reckoning with racial injustice and the start of the pandemic, how does this project aim to heal and bring greater awareness to these ongoing issues? I think that sometimes when we face like these tough times, these tough issues, the duty of the artist often is to elevate and to illuminate the issue. And that once the issue is um, elevated and illuminated, then we can all come together as a community and we can seek out what the solutions may be. Often the art may offer you solutions. The art always will um, speak to, you know, what the injustice is. But I think that it's the community uh, as a whole that's where the, the solutions actually lay. And so, yeah, the artist speaks to the times and then the community comes together and we, you know, try to find and navigate our way forward through these tough times to, you know, some kind of common ground, some place where we can all stand and um, stand there equally, stand there in love and stand there as a community. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that uh, to the Harlem Renaissance that you referenced earlier, Lewis, or you know, to any sort of major moment in history where we've faced challenges as a community, it is our artists and our art leaders that have inspired us and healed us and motivated us to keep going and to move on despite. Um, and I think this moment that we're in, which is, you know, an overused word, but is unprecedented, is no different. And I am firmly of the belief that it is our artists that are once again going to save us and um, share through their expression what often all of us are feeling and experiencing, but can't put into words and can't express quite as powerfully as they can. And so I think this campaign is a powerful way to elevate the voices of those artists that have made a living of healing and strengthening and inspiring our communities and giving them space and voice in a space that's so ubiquitous, like our transit system. I think that's a powerful way for us to do this. Yeah. And I think that's one of the highest compliments, like as an artist, when you perform and when you're done, someone looks at you and they, they were like, you said what I wanted to say. I didn't have the words, but you had the words and you said exactly what I was thinking. You know, I think that's one of the, the highest honors you can receive as an artist. And I love the fact that, like Faith is saying, we can we can bring this art and, you know, with the posters and with everything that's going to be done, some of this art will live in um, the actual trains and on the platforms and that way we can bring the art to the people sometimes people don't have the resources or the time to come out and visit the art themselves to hear you know Corey play the cello or hear Carlos do a poem and so this way we can bring the art to them literally and so I think that's actually a huge blessing and a, a, a fantastic and wonderful part of this project part of this is 
for us, for Marta Artbound, you know, and a lot of people may not be familiar with what we do, but one thing that has always been sort of a North Star for us is to amplify and to connect because I feel like that reflects Marta's role in the community too, as we connect people to work, family, uh, school, et cetera, that we want to connect and we want to amplify and we want to stand back in the background a bit because we have so much incredible art in Atlanta and so many amazing makers and creators that our role really is to stand back. And so in the context of the push for social justice uh, that continues, I think that it really was a wake-up call for me as far as we think we're doing a lot, but how much are how much more can we do and are we really? And so decentering art bound and sort of pushing forward the artists is really what we do in this situation and what we can do. And I think that, as I said, is quite reflective of Marta's role, that we're here to support, to connect, and that we do see ourselves as part of a social infrastructure and that um, we can be a driver in building community through art. Catherine Durga, the Director of Art in Transit at Marta, Faith Carmichael, co-founder and director of Next Atlanta, and poet and author John Good. More information about the Next Movement Project and their upcoming events is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, the multi-Grammy award-winning guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper Amplifying Atlanta, this is listener-funded 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last month, the multi-Grammy award-winning guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper released his highly anticipated album, Bloodline Maintenance. He continues to refine his masterful playing and composition into a rich, eclectic blend of folk traditions. I spoke with Ben Harper in April when he was headlining the Amplify Decatur Music Festival. Let's listen back to that conversation now. Music is the family business, and not only do the Harpers have a music store, but also a storied 
folk music center in Claremont, California. What was it like growing up around so much music? Well, it was hurdy-gurdies for breakfast and banjos for lunch and bagpipes for dinner. I love it. So to say you were exposed to many different forms of music from the time you were a toddler would not be overstating it. Not at all. And through those hallowed doors of the Claremont Folk Music Center have walked everyone from Pete Seeger and Reverend Gary Davis to Taj Mahal and Jackson Brown and Leonard Cohen and to get to sit as a young child and a grown adult at the hem of their garments. I just feel the privilege, the weight of the privilege only grows stronger with age. Mm. Now, you are an accomplished guitarist in many styles. I read that the first musical instrument to really grab your attention was the lap steel guitar. That's, that's right. What was it about that sound that moved you? When I was a kid, David Lindley would come into my family's music store and he would sit at the lap steel, I would say five, six, seven, and when he would pick up the lap steel guitar just to play recreationally in our family store, not only would the entire place stop, and it takes a lot to stop commerce, always has. You know, I'm also a skateboarder. It, you know, every once in a while, a skateboarder will show up at the skate park, and, and we call it closing the place down. Everyone stops to watch him. I saw there's a skateboarder named Chris Jocelyn who showed up at my local skate park, and everybody just stopped to watch. And it was like that with David, even as a young kid. But not only would David seemingly stop the activity within the shop, but something in my internal melodic time clock stopped as well. Everything around me stopped when he would start to play. It never let up. It never let go. The lap steel guitar is an almost mythical instrument, and its origins remain a mystery. African-Americans in the South had early slide instruments like the diddly bow, and then there's the Hawaiian influence. Do you, do you feel like there's sort of a universality in the sound? Yes, not only is there a universality in the sound, but of all the sounds, to me, it is the closest sonic and melodic representation of the human voice, as I've heard on any instrument. Mm. Winter is for Lovers is entirely instrumental, and you play lapsteel on that album. I was intrigued with your description of the recording as a lapsteel symphony. Will you explain why, in an interview, you compared the structure of the album to the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace? Oh, I'd love to. As I was trying to compose Winter is for Lovers and coming up with different ways to approach the album, I was simultaneously reading Infinite Jest. And I was a bit lost in making Winter is for Lovers. I was going to use different guitars for every different stanza. 
I was going between electric and acoustic. And it's not that I was hitting a wall, but it just, that concept wasn't working. And as I was reading Infinite Jest, it hit me, it something struck me to where I was so obsessed and fascinated by how he had written the book. About 200, 300 pages in, I had to go online to better, I didn't wanna get the ending, I had to be careful. I didn't wanna to do too much research, but I also needed to know a little bit more about how he, how he was composing this because it felt like there were not discordant, but there were different stories that were simultaneously being told at once, but somehow were inextricably linked. So I dug into an interview that he had done and I found that that is what they were. They were, they were, he was writing these things concurrently and at a certain point realized that they were all one. It was one story. And I was able to take that brave, brave literary principle that he had for the most part, invented through Infinite Jest and apply it to Winter is for Lovers. So, Ben, what is the overarching narrative or theme of Winter for Lovers? The theme, the overarching theme in Winter is for Lovers. You know, I'm, I have never been asked this. So I, I love that I'm answering you in a way that is absolutely on the spot. Oh, well, thank you. So if there is a theme, and I'm, I will have to think about that for a second, I would say that it is intimacy in a word. And I would say intimacy because I had produced an entire, the exact same album I had produced symphonically and with a larger production. And I scrapped it in its entirety to go back in and reimagine it with just myself and a guitar. Oh my. Was Winter is for Lovers a COVID lockdown creation? While it sure felt like it, it absolutely was not. Winter is for Lovers was completely recorded in its entirety at least six months before the pandemic. Mm. And I thought long and hard about whether or not to release it during a pandemic because I I don't want people to reflect on it as a pandemic record, but I'm, as I say this in real time, feel that I have even outgrown that. What's wrong with having a pandemic? What's wrong with having put out a record? Though people can associate it to that time, like, oh my God, when I hear this, I think about being locked down. But if it was even a single solitary moment of solace and comfort for one person in that time, Maybe that's one of the things that they can look back on with fond memories instead of something otherwise. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is the acclaimed guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper. The different tracks on the album refer to geographical places. 
How do you invoke a special environment through the music? You know, full disclosure, those titles, while they did end up working out, were for the record company. Oh. Yeah, they they weren't excited. It was supposed to be released as one 32-minute piece. And I have to take, I have to hold up my hand and be responsible for my role in the choir here, but I was talked into allowing them to be broken up for potential playlisting. And hopefully that will be the final decision I ever make as far as uh, kowtowing to the commerce component when it comes to the creative. Knock on wood, that's the final time I'll need to learn that lesson. Yeah. But because I agreed to do that, I decided to give the each individual movement a title to the place it was most connected to geographically. Many of the songs were actually written in the places of the names I gave them. your bucket list items was to make an album with your mother, Ellen. Yes. In 2014, I believe it was, you released an album together titled Childhood Home. Would you describe that experience creating songs together with your mom? Creating songs with my mom, not not only creating them, but recording them, producing them, being able to sit at the table with my mom in a major record company and discuss strategy. It almost took until that time for me to grow up. It was very much a recognition of my mom's struggle, my own childhood struggles with identity, you know, my mom and my family, we've all been through so much together. And it was, it cleaned the slate. It hit reset uh, on an emotional level for my mom and I in a way that I don't think anything else could have done. A house is a home, even when it's dark. Even when the grass is overgrown in the yard. Even when a dog is too old to bark. And when you're sitting at the table trying not to stop, a house is a home, even when we've up and gone, even when you're there alone, a house, a house is a home. So how does it feel to listen back or sing those songs together eight years later? You know, I actually miss singing with her. We'll have to get her out on the road again because we only pulled <laughs> her on that record once. And of all the people I have sung with, and that would range from Natalie Maines to Ricky Lee Jones, Eddie Vedder, and countless others, singing with my mom is the number one most comfortable 
music experience I've ever had. Because she knew, she knows her, she knows, it's like, okay, are you taking the uh, the harmony, the third, the fifth? Who's got the melody? Who's got the harmony? And go. Because we have, we have been singing together since I was born. You have a reputation for supporting many activist causes, which range from ocean conservation and food insecurity to the Tony Hawk Foundation, which builds skate parks and supports kids' charities. How has your platform as a musician helped you amplify those causes? Music has provided a karmic accelerator, so to speak, for me to be able to contribute to not only the causes, but the people who are on the front lines of those causes. Music, I think, has provided me a post-artistic platform in the near future for me to commit my life to. I don't see myself touring that much longer, really. I, I, I love it, and I still feel like every show is my first. But when I do stop, I want to stop with that feeling. I don't want to run to exhaustion. I'd like to step away from touring and, and creative life in a way that I can feel cleansed by it. And when I do that, I do look to step into a more active role, socioculturally, sociopolitically. Multi-Grammy award-winning guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper. His latest album, Bloodline Maintenance, is out now. After a short break, We'll listen back to my conversation with the king of rant, comedian Louis Black. Amplifying Atlanta, this is listener-funded WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for joining us. The King of Rant, comedian Louis Black, is known to many comedy fans for his ornery rants and biting commentary. He became a household name with recurring features on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and he played the embodiment of anger in the Pixar film Inside Out. In honor of his 74th birthday today, let's listen back to my conversation with Lewis Black when he was in Atlanta on his off-the-rails comedy tour. Here, he talks about being back in person after a two-year hiatus. It's really uh, been great, and the best thing that's happened uh, in terms of my brain in uh, over two years plus. The audience is terrific. They've been exceptional. I've been having a great time. And considering that my, my really my primary relationship is with my audience, it was like being in a separation, a trial separation. That, and I'm glad, I'm glad we decided to get back together. Yeah, I mean, a comedian needs to hear the response of the audience. You need to hear the laughter back. And for all performers, I mean, the pandemic was devastating because you need an audience to 
complete your art. Yeah. In our previous conversation, I asked you if your state of rage on stage and on screen is just part of the performance or part of your personality. And you said, if I acted like that all the time, I'd be dead within 36 hours. And then you said, it's partly the character, but you think you're funniest when you're angry. How did you come up with that angry, rant-crazed persona? Well, it it's just pushing a little further what, you know, I'd get angry and I'd start sputtering around my friends and and they would laugh at it. You know, that was the where it started. And I found it to be the same once I started doing it on stage, but it took a long time to get there because that's kind of part of my personality. And you don't want to put that out there because you're afraid if it's rejected, they're rejecting you. And so uh, it took a while, but it's also, it's learning how to play angry. You can't just be angry or that's the end of it. (laughs) Then you're done. So it was learning, and I and I across the line uh, uh, on occasion, but I basically I realize it and tell the audience, and so they they realize I realize it, and it and then they kind of realize that it you know it, they get the humor of that, which helps if you're honest with them. But I've learned over time just how to uh, play that line. Yeah, I wonder about feedback you might get from people who don't get the humor. Just recently, your St. Patrick's Day little feature on your website. I visit your website often, and I was in hysterics about your saying St. Patrick was the patron saint of liquor distributors. (laughs) But you get pushback from people who say, you're perpetuating Irish stereotypes. This is negative. And, you know, I mean, people can really take you to task. Do you get pushed back? I try not to pay attention to it. That's hard, but I, I have to, I look at it occasionally. I send things out and I expect pushback and I sometimes don't get it. To get it in terms of, look, my, my closest friend is Kathleen Madigan. If she said to me, you know, I, don't, I think you're perpetuating the myth of, of the Irish. You know, I, look, I perpetuate the myth of the, of Wisconsin drinkers, <laughs> and they're proud of it. So it's ludicrous, you know. It's and it's one voice. Okay, I'm going to tell you, nobody cares. I don't have that much of a celebrity status. I mean, I've sent out clips about my, you know, pictures of my mother, and people have said, you know, things about it. You know, said things that they shouldn't have, and you kind of go. Wow, I mean, it's, and you don't know if it's a bot oh. or if it's real. Oh, yeah. That's the other problem. A lot of the times I'll respond to them with a direct message, if I can, especially on Twitter, and go, you know, I, I'm really sorry that I disappointed you. Mm-hmm. My heart aches because of this. And then they'll write back, I'm really sorry, I didn't really mean it. I, you know, they'll, because it's part of what causes all of this is they're not in a public square, they're not standing in front of you. It's not something they can do. It's the same. It's like having a a heckler in in the dark. And you turn to them and you go, what'd you say? And then they don't say anything. And you go, perfect. Okay. 
interesting how people will back down. But the vast majority of people love your rants and your angry persona. I thought about the movie and the play Network, which when it came out, you know, we thought, oh, this is such fabulous satire with the character. I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. But do you think maybe, as in Network, do you think people feel like you're cathartic for them? Well, I know the kids have said, yeah, you know, I like you because you're like my father, only you're funny. <laughs> a high compliment. And I've had people say, I really like you because of your philosophy, which is also high praise. I mean, I, I really, that makes me very happy. I think people who come to my shows, my audience gets it. They're people who don't get it. And they really shouldn't come to the show. I don't know why they're there. I don't know what they're thinking. And I've started to talk about that at the beginning of the show now. I just kind of go, look, if you're here and you expected something else, if something I say shocks you, then really that's on you, okay? Because there are plenty of places you could have found me saying things that are shocking and uh, you didn't do due diligence. So you can't blame me. It's, uh, it's your fault. And don't interrupt what I'm doing. If you don't like it, don't laugh. That's what you get to do when you're in a theater. And you haven't been in a theater in a long time. So okay. let's try to remember that. And I expect you to do it with me and any other comic who shows up in your town. Because there are people who pay money to see us. And they overpaid to see us. And they're going to be very upset when you open your mouth. They didn't come to hear your comment. At the end of each of your stand-up performances, you do a live stream show called The Rant is Due. Listeners can also hear this on your podcast, Rantcast. Can you tell us how this works? Do you read the submissions by audiences before you rant about what they send you? Yeah, I mean, I read what they send me, and I started six years ago. And it, was, it started as a Q&A kind of a thing and grew into comments about the town. And then it grew into what's bothering you. And then it really became what's making you uh, mad. And it could be anything from serious to, uh, you know, some, a, a yelling and screaming about chunky peanut butter. And so um, I, what I do is, is I, I'll go into the, uh, the town and, like, I'll be coming to Atlanta and... Uh, Starting the day before, I'll start looking to see what stuff has come from Atlanta, and I'll start putting that aside. And I try to read what comes in from the audience that I'm performing for, from the city I'm performing in, from the surrounding area that I'm in, to the state that I'm in. I want it to be a show about the place that I'm at. It's very personal. It's my TV show. It's... It's what I, I brought to The Daily Show and what The Daily Show gave back to me, and now I can read others. And uh, what's happening now, what happened just before the pandemic, about six to eight months, were some of the best written rants I've ever seen. And then since then, we're getting back to it, and they're getting better and better and better. And I keep now I have to tell them for the first time ever, okay, guys, um, let's try to edit 
your stuff, okay? You know, you've been <laughs> you've been in shutdown so long, and I kind of get it. I understand that you really want to, you know, talk, but get to the point. But I do very little of that. They're they're really good at what they do, and there's and stuff that comes up is completely and utterly surprising, and goes from very very funny to very very sad. If you are just joining us. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is comedian Lewis Black. He's currently on his off-the-rails comedy tour. Can you recall what some of the best of those submissions from audience members have been? Well, there was one about a kid who was uh, going to become the first one that broke through and really and ended up in People magazine. The Ooh. kids ranted, and so did the kid, because he was yelling about, um, he was entering the Mormon church. He was supposed to do it that week. It was when the Mormon church had kind of some blowback about gays. He couldn't, he basically chose to walk away from Mormonism because of that. And uh, it was a great piece, just a great, it was long. And I just said to people, all right, I'm going to read this, and, you know, it's longer than most, and you don't turn off because uh, you're you're really going to be surprised to hear this. And then, then the other great one was somebody who opened up a. The reason I said peanut butter, a guy opened up something that he he wanted um, chunky peanut butter, and it, it, it were I can't remember if it was chunky or smooth or smooth and chunky, but whatever it was, it wasn't. He let's say he wanted the. The smooth and it was chunky. He went psychotic and wrote this thing about <laughs> how much he hated chunky and that it had to be smooth and the chunky peanut butter meant that they were lazy and weren't doing their job. Uh, hey, I could have a rant about daylight saving time. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm. Those came rolling in. Feel free. You got plenty of time. <laughs> During this tour, Lewis, your stand up is focusing more on life indoors during the pandemic. What did your daily routine look like when you were sheltering in place? Basically, I talk about the way I responded to the pandemic because I didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't do well. And uh, I would walk, I was lucky because I had a place, a terrace and I could walk on my terrace and I would walk a mile or two miles a day on my terrace. Oh, wow. terrace. And up and down stairs. And then in the meantime, you know, I did nothing of, you know, that apparently a lot of people, you know, became better people. You know, they they uh, learned how to sous vide. They, they, <laughs> they, they learned how to, uh, to do their own sushi. They learned all sorts of skills, none of which interested me. I didn't even cook for myself. There you go. You live in New York, right? Right. You got to take out. It's just a way of life. And also, I think that the reason you don't cook for yourself is because it's the road to madness because of fractions. You are right. I mean, and then <laughs> you, you got to convert grams and milligrams. Oh, Who yeah. needs that when you could just call in your order and get takeout? Exactly. And your show has closed with your telling the audience, take care, yeah. be well, I love you. Yeah. I love your humor, Lewis Black, and I'm so glad you are back on the road. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure again to spend time with you. I always enjoy it, and thank you.
comedian Lewis Black. Today marks his 74th birthday, and he's on his off-the-rails comedy tour. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from playwright Amina S. McIntyre about the film Comfort, a short film created in collaboration with Out of Hand Theater and the CDC Foundation to combat vaccine hesitancy. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.